Father, thank you for your word, which has spoken to people down the centuries. Thank you for the truth that sets us free. And we pray this morning that we might hear your voice speaking to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we continue our series looking at how we communicate our faith with people who maybe don't share our faith. And uh, we'll be looking in more depth uh, at that passage in a few moments. I'm a very proud grandfather uh, reading that. Um, and I was thinking, Elliot, there's, if you go on YouTube, there's a, there's a video of Elliot standing at the back of church uh, when all the building work was being done in the middle of a building site saying how much he was looking forward to being part of the church in the, in the future. So it's great to be able to, to baptize uh, Alfie and, and have you as part of this service this morning. And one of the most creative minds of the last 50 or 60 years um, is not Neil Kempsel, um, creative though he is, um, it's actually Steve Jobs. Uh, Steve Jobs, uh, known to many, many people around the world, uh, responsible together with other people for establishing, founding and building up uh, the company of Apple. And um, some people uh, love him, some people hate him. Uh, some people say that through the um, iPod and the iPhone and the iMac and the MacBook and the computer and the iPad, um, he's, he's responsible for helping us communicate uh, around the world. Um, some people would say at the same juncture that he's responsible for people not communicating as we all sit in the same room with our phone or with our tablet and we're texting or Twittering or whatever it might be, being in the same space as other people but actually not communicating with each other in the same room. One of the things that emerged uh, after Steve Jobs had died was that one of the things that Jobs had wrestled with all the way through his life uh, was that actually he was in the grip almost of something that enslaved him. And what gripped Steve Jobs wasn't success, it wasn't money, it wasn't beating Microsoft and Bill Gates. It was something else. He was actually enslaved by food. He was obsessed about food in ways that dominated his life and relationships. As a teenager, he experimented with strange diets. Uh, for a fortnight, he only ate, ironically, apples. For two weeks, that's all he ate, apples. And when he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2003, they reckoned that his obsessive tendency, which surfaced about control around food, may even have led to his premature death. Diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2003, he was to die in 2011. But what few people realized is that for the first year, Steve Jobs refused surgery. He refused the advice of the medical staff who were treating him. He refused the advice of the doctors who were looking after him. And he wanted to control his cancer through using his diet. And so he tried to control the cancer by means of his diet, a mixture of a vegan diet and large quantities of fresh carrot and fruit juice. And it was only over a year after the initial diagnosis when he realized that his diet wasn't controlling the cancer that he agreed to undergo surgery. 
And by that time, when they opened him up, they discovered that the cancer had spread into secondaries and, and elsewhere in his body. And at the end, his wasted body, that is quite a shocking photograph there on the, the right-hand side, his, his wasted body was not just down to the cancer, it was actually due to his obsessive behavior with food and to want to control his diet. Now, what Jobs didn't realize was that far from him controlling his diet, actually his diet had come to control him. He was enslaved by his need to control what went into his body. And what he couldn't see, ironically, was that he was enslaved. He was enslaved by his desire to control, which paradoxically was controlling him. Now, he was as enslaved as the people that Jesus spoke to in John chapter 8 that Neil read for us a few moments ago. Gathered for one of the big three Jewish festivals, the Feast of Tabernacles, when the Jewish people celebrated, ironically, the greatest failure when they refused to enter the promised land when Moses told them to, and they had to spend an extra 40 years wandering around the wilderness. The Feast of Tabernacles was the occasion when the Jewish people would leave their homes and would pitch tents. They would pitch tabernacles as a sort of yearly reminder to themselves of their need to depend upon God. But this wasn't a sort of a reminder of, of God's ability to provide for them or of God's ability to, to come through for them. This was a reminder on a national scale of when they had been disobedient to God. It's quite an odd festival to set up for yourself as a nation. We will remember when we failed. I will not make any sporting analogies. I will just let it sit there. Whether you're English or Scottish, you can apply uh, that particular analogy. But they have this national festival to remember when they failed. And that's a scene of what the temple would have looked like with four enormous lights, menorahs set up, candelabras, huge things set up. And it was in the context of that that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. What he was saying was, you think these lights are something, these sort of 10-foot candelabras with huge candles on, you think these are bright? I'm the light of the world. You ain't seen nothing yet, is the ancient Hebrew text. That's what he was saying. But it's in the context of that where Jesus has joined this feast and where the city is full of excited pilgrims that John chapter 8 occurs. Jesus has joined the festival halfway through. We don't know why, but he comes to the festival halfway through. He starts to teach in the temple courts, and people are fascinated by the person of Jesus. There is something about his preaching, something about his teaching, which is incredibly powerful, but also incredibly beautiful. It's deeply attractive to people. And so people start to gather around Jesus and start to listen to him. The Jewish authorities start to become a bit concerned about this preacher from up north who's come down to the capital city and started to gather a crowd around him. They, they try and persuade temple guards to arrest him. 
And in John chapter 7, we're told the temple guards refuse to arrest Jesus because there's something about the personality and the teaching of Jesus that is so deeply attractive. It even reaches the point where a member of the Sanhedrin, the sort of Jewish general assembly, a guy called Nicodemus, defends Jesus to the rest of the Sanhedrin. It even becomes so popular that some Jews who are listening to Jesus start to follow him and they start to believe in him. Do you see there in John chapter 8 and verse 30, even as Jesus spoke, many believed in him. Now, if you've got a Bible in front of you, um, you'll, you'll see that, or if you remember a Bible being in front of you, um, there are little sort of notes on the top that are put in. They aren't part of the original text. They're little sentences that editors, um, American editors, have put in to try and explain the context of what is about to happen. Every now and again, they get it spectacularly wrong, and this is one of those occasions. Because the bit that's over this paragraph says, dispute over whose children Jesus' opponents are. Jesus is not speaking to his opponents. He is not speaking to his opponents. In the course of the conversation, they become his opponents because of the way that he handles the conversation and because of what he says. But at the beginning of the conversation, they are not his opponents. They are the people who have started to believe in Jesus. They are some of the crowd who have started to follow Jesus. They are some of the people who have started to think that Jesus might be the Messiah. He might be God's chosen one. He might be God's anointed one. He might be God's servant who has come to rescue his people, Israel. So if you've got an NIV, if you've got a church Bible, if you've got a pen, scrub out the words opponents because it's wrong. And you wouldn't want someone else to read the same Bible as you and to make the same mistake. Because Jesus is not speaking to his opponents He's speaking to people who started to believe in him. But his next statement takes their breath away. He says, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Immediately, the people listening to him start to take offense. He's telling us to be free. We aren't slaves. We're free already, is the gist of what they say in verse 33. We're Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus' reply is not one they want to hear. Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And it goes downhill from there. He questions their religious heritage. He questions their national identity. He questions whether they belong to God. And finally, he says, you are children of the devil. How to win friends and influence people. This is not. Jesus is telling it like it is to the people who started to believe in him. And there are three quick pointers from Jesus that we can learn this morning. Firstly, verse 34, Jesus tells them the truth. Verse 34, I tell you truly, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, immediately they say, we're not slaves. 
We don't need truth to set us free because we're not slaves. We are free. Their denial is, quite frankly, bizarre. If there was anything about the history of the Jewish people up to this point, it was a history of the Jewish people being in slavery. They had been enslaved by numerous civilizations down the centuries. They'd been enslaved by Egypt. They'd been enslaved by Assyria. They'd been in slavery in Babylon. They'd been in slavery in Persia. They'd been enslaved by the Greeks. And now they were occupied by imperial Rome. If there was one thing that was true of the people of Israel up to this point, it was they had been slaves. They knew what it was to be slaves. They had one of the great other festivals, the Passover, that celebrated when they had been released from slavery. So it's a nonsense for the people who've started to believe that Jesus is the Messiah to say we don't need to be freed because we are free. Why is he saying that we need to be freed as if we're in slavery because we've never been in slavery? We are Abraham's children. They're denying their history. They're denying reality. They're denying the truth of what has actually happened in the history of the people of Israel. Likewise today, many people live denying the reality of who they really are. People will dream up all sorts of philosophies and ways of living which actually feed in to the lie as to who they really are. They, they try and construct pretend scenarios and try and make things that aren't true, true, or vice versa. Atheism, for example, I think is ultimately self-deceiving and a narrative of incredible despair. If you've ever been to an atheistic funeral, it's one of the most depressing things whether you're a Christian or not, it is one of the most depressing things you can ever go to. And time and time again, when I speak to people who've been to a, an atheistic or secular funeral and they're increasing in number, people say, it was just empty. There's no hope. I remember the one that I went to with Kathy for her grandfather. And it was just so bleak was made even worse by the fact that in that particular crematorium um, that the coffin was put behind some sort of gilded gates and the coffin was just there out of reach but you couldn't touch it. The gate shut and you had to walk out past the coffin leaving the coffin there. The previous 25 minutes had been the most depressing thing I'd ever been part of. There was no hope. And atheism is like that. One writer, Francis Spuford, put it like this. He takes, for example, the song Imagined by John Lennon, a song that is often put out as a sort of atheistic anthem. And he says this. The song Imagine is beautiful if you try not to think too hard about it. Consider the teased and quaffed nylon monument that is, imagine, surely the my little pony of philosophical statements. 
Imagine there's no heaven. Imagine there's no hell. Imagine all the people living life in, hello? Excuse me? Take religion out of the picture and everybody spontaneously starts living in peace? I don't know about you, Spufford says, but in my experience, peace is not the default state of human beings. It's just not true. That somehow if you remove God out of the equation, people will suddenly start to get on with each other. History tells us a completely different story. So Jesus tells them a truth, but secondly, he tells them the truth, or a truth, that they don't want to hear, verses 42 to 44. He says to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own, God sent me. G.K. Chesterton many years ago said, if you take God out of the equation, it's not that people believe in nothing. The reality is that people will believe in anything. And if we're honest this morning, that's true. If we look at the world around us, a world where the church has to be honest and say that fewer and fewer people in Scotland are attending church, where church attendance figures and statistics are just going down and down and down, the reality is that the people around us do not believe in nothing. The reality is that they are willing to believe in anything. And the reality is also, just as Jesus said to the people in John chapter 8, that the people that we live amongst and of which we are a part are also living lives of slavery. Now, it's not physical slavery. It might be to things like money. It might be to sex. It might be to power. It might be to possessions. It might be to happiness. It might be like Steve Jobs, to perfectionism. It might be our need for affirmation or recognition. It might be success or fame or achievement. But one thing is true for most of us in our society, including those of us in this building, is that we are in slavery to one thing or another. It might be a particular habit. It might be a particular way of thinking. As people get older, you can see what they become enslaved to. My dad, for the last four or five years before he died, basically became a slave of his routine. So my dad always got up at the same time of the day, probably at about half nine, quarter to ten. He always had porridge every single morning for the last ten years. Then he had his porridge where he sat in the same place every day to have his breakfast. He then moved to the same place in the lounge and sat in the same seat where he then watched the same television program for the same amount of time, then had a cup of coffee made in exactly the same way every single morning. And then he watched the same program after his coffee that he'd watched numerous times before. And then it was time for lunch. And for every lunchtime, he had exactly the same thing every single day, made in the same way. And he ate it in the same place. Now, even now, people are nudging one another going, that's you. That's you. And you're not very old. The person that you've nudged, imagine what they'll be like in 40 years' time. 
if they're alive then, they will be even worse. But we're all, to some degree, now routine and, and habit and normal things, that, that's part of life. And as you get older, that becomes a, a more important part of life. Trust me. Um, and we don't like change as we get older. I understand that. But we become slaves to things. It can happen even in a church. It can happen even to where you sit in church. How many of you have sat in exactly the same place from when we moved back into this building if you've been coming to this church for the last eight or nine years i have i've sat in the same place on the front row and i sit somewhere else and it feels a bit different that's okay because the point of church is not for you to sit in the same seat every week if somebody new is in your seat that's a good thing but we become enslaved can happen at work, can happen in relationships. And it might be around friendships, it might be around possessions, it might be around achievement, it might be around the next promotion, it might be around how much we earn. But the reality is that you and I are often enslaved. As enslaved as the Jews in Egypt or as enslaved as so many Africans were before Wilberforce or Abraham Lincoln. Now, the reality is that there are more human beings literally enslaved in real slavery today than at any other point in world history. And the vast majority of us are not enslaved through human trafficking or the sex trade, but we are enslaved in something more comprehensive and deadly. And Jesus put it very starkly in verse 34. He said, you are enslaved in sin. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Elsewhere in the Bible, one of the early church leaders, Paul, puts it this way. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. That's the spiritual law at work in human beings. The good that we want to do, we do not do. And the things that we do not want to do, we end up doing happens every January. They're called New Year's resolutions and they're broken by January the 5th for most of us. The good that we want to do, we don't do and the things that we don't want to do, we end up doing. We're enslaved to sin and there is nothing that we can do to break the power of that sin. So Jesus tells them the truth it's a truth they don't want to hear, but he also explains then how they can be free. Verses 31 to 32. To the Jews who believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is the paradox at the heart of the Christian faith. That in order to know what real freedom is, in order to be released from the slavery of doing those things that we do not want to do, the only way that that can happen is not by us pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's not by us being nicer, better, or even more religious people, praying more, reading the Bible more, giving more to church, giving more to charity, whatever. It happens by holding to the teaching of Jesus, 
recognizing who Jesus is, surrendering our lives and giving control of our lives over to somebody else. That in order to become free, we need to hand control of our lives over to somebody else. To admit that we don't know what's best for our lives, that we shouldn't be the person who is in charge of our lives, and to recognize God's control and God's desire, and to live life on God's terms. In the words of C.S. Lewis, fallen humanity is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. We are rebels who need to lay down our arms. We're not merely imperfect creatures who need improvement. We are rebels who need to lay down our arms. You see, it doesn't happen through where you're born. That's where the people that Jesus was talking to had got it wrong. They said, we don't need to be free. We don't need to know the truth because we're Abraham's children. We're God's children. We're the people of Israel. We've inherited our faith because of years ago, because of the descend- people who we're descended from. We're Abraham's children. Jesus is saying, you don't become free because of where you're born. You don't become free because of the family that you're born into. Alfie won't have faith because he's born into the Kempsel family, noble though his heritage is, even though he has your name, Neil. Alfie will only have faith when he owns the promises that were said on his behalf for himself. When he's able at some point in the future to stand before a congregation, this one or another one, and say, I repent of my sins, I renounce evil, I turn to Christ. When he's able to own those promises for himself, that's when Alfie will be free. And the best way you as parents can help with that is by showing him your faith and helping your faith to grow and mature as well. Because if he sees faith in you, as well as his grandparents and the rest of his family, then he's more likely to own it for himself. But this faith that actually enables people to be free isn't inherited. He will inherit many things from his parents. I'm not going to say which are good and which are bad, but he will inherit some stuff. Uh, When Kathy was pregnant with with our first child, Josh, uh, the youth group that we were leading at the time prayed for two things, that they wouldn't, and none of our children would inherit my eyebrows or Kathy's laugh. Sadly, they got my eyebrows. But he won't inherit faith unless he owns it for himself. This faith can only come as we own it for ourselves and recognize who Jesus is. If we, in Jesus' words, hold to his teaching. The Jewish people had a great and rich history. As a nation, the people of God were the people of God. But they had to realize that it was not about that. It was about who they believed Jesus to be. That makes all the difference. Still does. 
Again, to refer back to the, the news over the past couple of weeks, that remarkable statement that Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, was able to make when he was told that his birth father, the person, well, he thought was his birth father, wasn't, in fact, his birth father, he came out with this statement. I know that I find who I am in Jesus Christ, not in genetics, and my identity in him never changes. And Welby was able to say, I know it's shocking news. It's thrown me for a while. But actually, who my earthly dad is, isn't the most important thing in my life. The most important thing in my life is who my heavenly father is. Who my identity in Christ is. And if I'm sure as to who my identity in Christ is, I can cope with all the other stuff. Remarkably gracious response. So what are the implications for us this morning, 2,000 years after Jesus uttered these remarkable words? Firstly, we need to accept, in or outside of Christ, that we are slaves. That we're slaves to sin. That outside of Christ, there is nothing that we can do to know this faith that will set us free. That outside of Christ, there is nothing that we can achieve, nothing that we can impress God with that will make him love us more. God simply loves us. And we need to recognize this morning who Jesus is. Hold to the teaching of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, that he was God come in human form and trust that if we do that, then we can be free. Secondly, it has implications for how we share our faith with people who are not yet Christians. Our part of the church, now the, 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 the church has always been good on, about some things. One of the things that the church, particularly in Scotland, has been exceptional at is being negative. The church in Scotland is exceptionally good at being negative. In communicating the faith that we believe in, we will, on occasion, have to be people who speak things that are deeply uncomfortable to people. Jesus did not mince his words by saying, you are slaves to sin. I don't think we should go the full extent and, like Jesus say, you're children of the devil, because that's not going to help. But we may be faced with situations where we have to say things that people do not want to hear. In the surveys that were done last year, 53% of Scots thought Christianity in Scotland was judgmental. Higher, much higher than in England. 53% of Scots have never read the Bible. So where are people getting their idea that Christianity is judgmental from? It's people like you and me. Probably people like me. We're very good in the church in Scotland by, about being negative. So we need to choose carefully how we're negative about the right things. Remember that Jesus is described as being full of grace and truth. In the church, and particularly in the part of the church, what's called the evangelical part of the church that we belong to, we have emphasized the truth bit really well we haven't emphasized enough the grace part jesus was full of grace and truth 
What we're communicating may be true, but if the way in which we're communicating it is putting people off, we need to rethink the way that we're communicating. To my shame, my sister can still remember the tea time 38 years ago when as a Christian of about a year and a half, I proudly told the rest of my family around the tea table that they were going to hell. <laughs> Just told them straight. They asked, it was their fault, they asked the question. <laughs> my sister said to me, Dave, do you really think that the three of us are going to hell? I said, yes, you are. You passed the salt. <laughs> my sister, 38 years to my shame, can still remember that tea time. I was communicating something that was true, but I wasn't doing it with much grace. Jesus was full of grace and truth. When we share our faith with people, is it with as much grace, if not more grace, than truth? And finally, we need to recognize the things that enslave us. And there will be different things for those of us this morning. Different things in our lives that control us, if we're honest. For many of us, particularly if we're not Christians, if we haven't come to the point where we believe that Jesus did die for our place on the cross, where we have come to that point where we recognize that Jesus is God become a human being, and he, he came to this earth 2,000 years ago to show us what God is like. And when he died on the cross, he died in our place to take our sins, to take our punishment, in order that we might know God's forgiveness. If we haven't come to that point, then we are in slavery to sin. And we need to come to that point where we recognize that God, and only God, can set us free from that slavery to sin. But for all of us, there will be other things that we will be in slavery to. Ambition, achievement, recognition, possessions, money, whatever it might be. And we need to come afresh this morning and ask God to set us free. To surrender. And to live life on God's terms. James is going to lead us in a time of response before the end of the service.